0: Father, it's a gift to uh, have your word, it's a gift to uh, have access to the Bible, and to be able to, uh, to open its pages, and to be able to uh, understand uh, who you are, understand the work of your son Jesus, and to understand uh, the response that you, that you call us into. We know we can't approach, um, we can't approach your, your word uh, just on our own, we, we need your help. We need the Spirit's uh, illumination to, to give us insight, to give us understanding, to help us be humble and teachable. But God, we know that you're gracious and that you desire to give those things to us. Would you please speak to us now through your word? Would you help us to see how uh, this text is, is truly good news for us? That you desire to help us through this text, that you desire to lead us um, into a, a life of, of good, uh, of, of goodness and flourishing that honors you and glorifies you. Would you help us to see Jesus as the centerpiece of this text, as the Savior we need to look to, the savior we need to trust in, and, and the one that we need to follow with our lives and our allegiance? God, comments in your spirit to to open our eyes and our our minds and our hearts uh, to receive your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we talked about trials last week, and trials is still really the theme that we're going to see in this text for James. But before we get into that, I want to give you this, to do a sort of a recap, sort of like the previous episode recap. I want to just give you an image, right? Just think of a dilapidated home. So you're driving down the street, right? Maybe on Broadway, you see a dilapidated home. But outside... Uh, of this dilapidated home, you you, you see somebody there and you see them chipping away on it. You see that it looks ugly, but somebody there is just chipping away and they're scraping away the old, crusty, moldy paint and and they're they're getting it down to its foundation so that it can be made new. And what we looked at last week in James is that the trials of our lives, God desires to use them in that way. That God desires to take uh, the broken situations of our lives uh, whether big, medium, or small, whether momentous or kind of the everyday occurrences, he, he desires to 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 use them despite their their brokenness and the and the pain and uh, stress and annoyance and pressure attached to them. God desires to to use them to produce something beautiful in us. And in James one, James lays out this idea to his audience and he says, based on this understanding of trials, that as hard as they are, God is going to bring something beautiful out of them in you. Based on this understanding, he tells them to count trials as joy. He says, knowing the outcome will allow you to count the moment as joy, even in the midst of pain. So he's laying out this foundation for how to deal with trials. Now he's writing, mind you, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century Who are dealing with the prospect and the reality of being harmed, imprisoned, and treated unjustly for their faith? So he's writing to people who are going through trials that have a significant and immediate bearing on their lives. And he says, Count it joy because God is going to bring something beautiful out of this. He goes on in the passage, though. To, to, to help them further by saying, hey, if you have no idea how to count trials as joy, that sounds so counterintuitive, if you have no idea how to do that, ask God for two things. Ask him for wisdom and ask him for faith on how to deal with your trial and how to count it as joy. And he unpacks that. And now he gets to his next point regarding trials. His next point, this big idea in this text, is that trials are a fork in the road. No, how many of you have seen the movie Castaway? Away? And at the end, right? What is he, what is he staring down? Fork, fork in the road, right? He's staring down a fork in the road. Is it this way? That way, right? Fork in the road moments, okay? Uh, if you're somebody who gets lost, your fork in the road moment is like, am I supposed to take this turn or this turn? I have two seconds to figure it out, right? These moments where you've got to make a decision and the destination is going to be that or it's going to be that but you have a moment to make that decision. James's point here is that trials now in this new section, trials are a fork in the road moment or a continual fork in the road moment where there is an opportunity for either steadfastness, endurance, or we go down the path of temptation. Trials are an opportunity for steadfastness or endurance or an opportunity for temptation. What does that mean? James is going to show us. Let's look at the text. James 1, 9 through 18. So he's continuing his his kind of uh, treaty or his, his section on trials to his audience. He says this in 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, your first thought might be, wait a second, those seem like 17 different topics. How do those connect, and how do those have anything to do with trials? Well, here, here, here are the things that, that we're going to see, right? We're going to work through this text. We're going to see uh, these major things, that trials are this fork in the road moment, right? That there's a testing that comes with the temptation of trials, and there's a nature of temptation that we need to understand. So we're going to see the fork on the road moment, the testing, and the nature of trials and temptation. Notice the first thing that James is going to do. He's going to talk about money. He's going to say, Let the rich person do this. Let the rich man, let the rich woman do this, let the poor man, let the poor woman do this. Now, our our question is if he's talking about trials, why is he talking about rich and poor people? What does that have to do with trials? What we can see, though, from this text is that James is showing us that any change in your circumstance is a trial that can either refine your faith or become a temptation towards sin. So he's saying, hey, if you stumble into a bunch of money, that's a trial. That's a change in your circumstance that can either refine your faith, lead you to become a more generous person, lead you to become the type of person who says, hey, I don't have this income because I'm amazing. I'm just working hard and using the skills that God has given me, right? It can refine you. It can make you better. It can make you more Christ-like, more Christ-dependent. Or we all know what can happen when someone gets money, right? We, we know the opposite, right? The temptation is to become arrogant. The temptation is to think that you're self-sufficient. The temptation is to become prideful. The temptation is to wander from God. And so James is saying, he's giving us a tangible example of the fork in the road moment of trials. So what he's doing is he's saying, hey, if you're rich, don't boast about being rich. Boast in your humility. Boast in the fact that you need God's grace just like everybody else regardless of your status. Culture would tell you if you're rich, boast because you're better than people who aren't rich. You worked harder. You're smarter. You graduated from Harvard, right? But Boast in these things. God is saying, through James, riches are a fork in the road trial. Be humble in them because you know like riches, you, like all people, will fade away. Riches won't last, you won't last. It's not an eternal thing. So it says be humble in that change in circumstance. Let that trial not lead you into temptation, let it refine you and make you better. It says the same thing about poverty. Right? If you're poor, you can fall into self pity, you can fall into jealousy, you can fall into resentment, you can fall into greed. Poor people can be greedy. I don't know if you know that, right? Poor people, you not have any money. You don't have to have money to be greedy, right? You can have nothing and be greedy. And so James is saying, if you're, in, if you're uh, dealing with the trial of, of poverty, that can go these two ways, refinement, endurance, steadfastness, or temptation. So he says, if you're poor, instead of going the path of temptation, greed, bitterness, anger, he says, go this way, endure by boasting in your exaltation. What, what does that mean? He's saying, boast in the fact that you're poor, financially speaking, but you're rich in God's eyes. You have eternal life through Jesus Christ. You have the approval of God the Father. You have the love of the creator of the world. Boast in that. Don't boast in your social status. Boast in that, and you'll be able to move through poverty with endurance, becoming a better person, more Christ-like, rather than falling into the temptation that could come with the trial of poverty. Well, this is difficult to do, right? Isn't it difficult to look at any change in your circumstance as an opportunity for making you better? That's hard to do. But you Think about this. Think of changes in your circumstance that came to you this last week. How quick were you to count them joy and how quick were you to endure through them knowing this is making me better? That's so hard to do. It's graduation time, right? So that's, that's one easy change in circumstance where you can say, hey, this is making better. I'm done with this and I'm moving on. But for those of us not graduating, that's a hard thing to do. This is why James in 12 is going to remind us of the outcome of enduring through trials, right? We compared it last week to, to pressing through running a marathon or a 5K, pressing through knowing that the outcome is there. This is what he says in 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What he's giving us here is this image, right? Think of, uh, think of the Olympics, Right, we're, we're in Olympic year this year, right? I don't know if you knew that. Um, get ready. It's going to be all over your TV. Your favorite shows on NBC, <laughs> you're not going to see them for like three months, right? It's going to be all oh, Olympics. When you're going to turn on, it's just swimming. <laughs> What's going on, right? It's just going to be all Olympics, right? But the best part, even if you don't like to watch the Olympics, the best part, I think, right, is when people get the medals. Because you see the joy four years or more of hard work and training. They get on the podium, even if you're getting the bronze. Like, the person's kind of disappointed, but they're still kind of stoked, right? They're, they're getting this incredible honor right? that validates all this work that they put in. Literal blood, literal sweat, literal tears. It's this crowning moment. And the language of this crown of life is, a, is an athletic Olympic type, type language that, that James is, is, uh, is, is mentioning. And he's saying, when we endure through trials knowing that God is with us in them, We get the outcome of becoming more like Christ, continuing in our faith, and we get the outcome of God's eternal presence and blessing. Now, we get that through Jesus, but by enduring, we continue to step into that. I want you to imagine this, right? Imagine yourself refined in your character, a hundred times more loving. Imagine yourself refined in your character, a hundred times more gracious, Imagine yourself refined in your character a hundred times more humble. Imagine yourself in your character a hundred times more aware of God's presence in your everyday life. Imagine yourself a hundred times quicker to believe that God completely accepts you and loves you based on His grace not how good you've been. That is a scratch on the surface of what God is going to do in us and is doing through us in trials. That's the outcome that's coming. To make us Christ-like and God-dependent and this is this is the type of this is the type of person this hypothetical you, right? This is the type of person that our city needs. That the world needs. That changes neighborhoods. That changes workplaces. This is the outcome that comes as we sit under the refining surgery of of trials. But James knows that uh, this is difficult. And so he shows us that's one fork in the road. Twelve is one fork. That's That's the end of endurance. That's the end of steadfastness. But the other fork in the road is temptation. Go back to the example in verse 9. You get money plopped in your lap. All right? Imagine this. You get the email or you get called into the office on Monday at your job. And they're going to raise your salary by $50,000. All right, what's your immediate reaction? Cartwheel, right? You may not even be able to do a cartwheel. You're just going to try anyway and just fall over um, <laughs> and just stumble, right? Immediate reaction, $50,000. I'm in cartwheel, amazing taking a sick day right now, right? Heading to the dealership and making a bad purchase, right? It would be insane. That would be a fork in the road moment, a new circumstance in your life that could either lead to a refined you or could lead you down the path of temptation. Now James has just showed us, here is the road and destination to endurance in 12. Now he's going to show us, here's the other way we can deal with trials, Here's the other way that they can go. The way of temptation leading us to neglect God, disobey God, disregard God, elevate ourselves, elevate something above him. And he gets to the nature of temptation. Look at 12 through 15. Or 13 through 15, excuse me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is showing us the first thing when it comes to the fork in the road moment of trial. The first thing he's showing us is that temptation in those moments is not from God. Why does he say this? Why doesn't he just immediately go to the actions that you ought to take in a trial to not end up in temptation, but to endure? Why does he first immediately say temptations are not from God when you're in a trial? One of the reasons I think is this. Whether you go down the path of endurance or down the path of temptation in a changed circumstance or in a hard moment, it's tied first to your belief and second to action. So of first importance is what we believe. Now, imagine this. You have persecuted Christians who are dealing with physical harm coming their way, and they think, well, God is, God is sending this into our lives. What, what might happen if they believe that God is behind this trial in their lives? They might start to think, well, God is behind this, and he's no longer good. God is behind this, and I can no longer trust him. Maybe God is punishing me for this thing that I've been doing. Maybe I should disregard it. If we can't trust God in our trials and in our circumstances, why in the world will we ever then say, God, how do you want me to deal with this? We could never walk down the path of endurance and steadfastness. Right here, think of this line of thinking. And maybe you've done this before. I know I've done this in my life. God has sent the trial. The trial has caused me to be tempted. Therefore, God has tempted me into my stupid decision. I don't know how many of you have taken logic. I don't know. That's like a Modus tollens argument or something. I don't know which one that is, right? But it's just God has tempted, sent this. Therefore, he, and I'm tempted through this. Therefore, he tempted me. Therefore, it's okay for me to do this. Right? There's all sorts of blame shifting, there's all sorts of twisting, there's all sorts of kind of giving up Right that, that we could go to that would lead us further down this path of disregarding God and lead us into what James says is the end road of temptation, destruction, and death, and decay in our relationships and in us. So what James is trying to lay out to us first is he's saying God doesn't dangle this hook in front of us to see if we're going to bite it. So that's not the way God operates. That's not in line with his character. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 puts it like this. It says, God will not allow you to be tempted more than you can take. But when you are tempted, he will make a way for you to keep from falling into sin. This is important, so I want to give you an analogy. Think of this analogy. A teacher gives a test. What's the point of a test? Right, the point, point of a test is to show if the student knows the concepts, right, has understood and, and mastered the topic. But if the student has not done that and they fail... The test is not the cause of the student's failure. Unless you, dis- unless you disagree. Right? But it's not the cause. right? The test is the occasion. It's the context in which the student fails, but it's not the cause for the student's failure. Right? The test is the occasion for the failure, but not the cause of the failure. Imagine a student after they fail the test saying, well, if they hadn't tested me, I wouldn't have got an F. Right? That, that's just not going to hold up. It's not the test that does it, but it's the occasion for the cause, right? It's the same way in trials. Trials are, trials are not God causing us to sin, drawing us to temptation, but an occasion that he uses to see st- steadfastness and beauty emerge in our character. And James is going to go further. James is going to say that, that we're not tempted by God, we're tempted by ourselves, James is going to say that there's something inside of us that's, that's fundamental with our beautiful and broken nature as human beings. There's something inside of us that, that lures us and that tempts us. Now, certainly there's external things that can do that too. That's not the only teaching that the Bible gives about temptation. But it is saying that there is something within me and there's something within you that will set our own traps for ourselves. So it's something that we want to be aware of. James says temptation is a self-inflicted trap. I was trying to think of, think of ways that, to make this real to us. And one of the things that was, I came across is the, the, the guinea worm, which is a, a parasite that you can find in, um, in, Central, in Central Africa. Um, thankfully not in West Africa, which is where my mom is from, so I'm all good. Um, but you can find this in Central Africa. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting. It's fascinating. It, it, be, it starts, and I, my wife will know how much reading I had to do to understand these, some of these terms. Um, but it starts as, a, um, as like this tiny egg, I think a, a lar- larva? larva. Is that correct? Okay, thank you, Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> I should bring you up for this part. It um, starts as a larva, um, right? But it, this, is, this is so creepy. Uh, and as I, was, as I was preparing this, um, I saw my phone over uh, on the couch just slide down like in my periphery and it just freaked me out because I'm reading about this bug. I don't know and the day before there was an ant crawling on my shirt in the middle of my house so this has is, this is caused a lot of uh, it's been a trial for me a lot of stress um, but the guinea worm begins as this parasite begins as a larva and it, what it does is it, it, uh, it attaches to this like millimeter long um, like little creature um, and and what happens is when uh, when people drink from a stream in some of these regions, uh, the the little creatures in the stream, and then you drink something and it goes where? Into the stomach, right? It's the best place of the eating process. Uh, but this is not good. It, it goes into the stomach, um, and what happens is apparently our our gastric juices, uh, our gastric juices make uh, make quick work uh, of the of the little creature. So so the little like worm thing like dies, right? Um, but but the but the larvae deal like stays, and and what happens is that uh, that they they kind of like multiply. They poke holes in the intestine, and they just like continue to to do their thing. Uh, and, and then get this, the larvae kind of split, male or female, and about three months later, it becomes the the full grown guinea worm. It's about the width of a paperclip wire. And up to three feet long. I know. Um, <laughs> let's, can't, let's stop this. Um, <laughs> and it gets worse, friends. It gets much worse. Um, and so it has, causes a lot of pain and you're just like, what is wrong with my stomach? What's happening? Um, and then finally the worm pokes out of the host's uh, body. Usually I think through the foot. Uh, and if it 's not removed, it usually uh, apparently it leads to the to the host 's death now, now here 's the thing once it 's exposed, you can only remove it a few centimeters at a time, otherwise it will pull apart and die and like spread and cause infection um, in the rest of your body so it 's this painful process that takes weeks and months, just a little bit of time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. This shows us the, the cycle of temptation. Right? This is, this is the cycle that James is talking about. You're just like, no, this just, this just made me feel sick, Claude. This has nothing to do with James 1. This, this, is, this is the cycle of temptation, though. Look at the cycle that James gives in this text. What does he say? He says, you are lured and enticed by your own desire. That there's something inside of us, it's parasitic in a way, it's inside of us, we're enticed and lured by it. This is is actually, um, this is the language of seduction. That there's something within us that seduces us almost. That we end up seducing ourselves, and desire takes over, we get enticed by our desire. And desire, when conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. It's this cycle. Something within us, enticing us, luring us, working in us. And it leads to destruction in the end. This fork in the road. Endurance, steadfastness, temptation, which leads to destruction, death, decay of our souls and our relationships. And this path starts with desire. This language for desire um, is uh, is is never really... Um, always rendered really well um it's a hard word to capture but it's the idea of a of a must have it's the idea of an inordinate desire it's something that that usually could be something good but we say i must have that and we define everything around it and we say i have to have that it's not always a desire that that's wrong according to god's word but it's something that we desire too much it's when we say i must have something at any cost And this is why actually when you look at the story of the Bible When you look at scripture um, This idea of sin is so much more than breaking rules in God's eyes It's a warped desire that says I must have this thing at any cost Above and against and beyond Whatever God provides me Or whatever God says I must have this thing And what James says is This cycle of temptation that leads to death It starts with a little embryo Of must have desire It's all it takes a little bit of must-have desire that seduces us, lures us, traps us. I want you to think about the ways that this uh, this might work out for us. Um, James, James is saying is that behind our broken habits and sinful behavior, there's a desire problem within us. So you might lash out uh, at somebody in anger. Why? It's because there's something that you must have that they're not recognizing, that they're not providing, that they're not giving to you. So it's what causes you to lash out. right? Uh, this must-have desire, right? Think of, uh, think of even something like acceptance. Must-have desire, this, this, this sinful little embryo of desire that leads us down this path of decay. It's not just saying, oh, I'd like to be accepted. It's saying, I must be accepted. I must be seen as this type of person. That's an inordinate must-have desire that will seduce us and lead us down this path of temptation. right? Again, it's right and good to say, food, pleasure, sex are gifts from God to be enjoyed rightly according to his wisdom. But it's a completely other thing to say, I must have these things and they define me. I must have them at all costs. It's a must-have, inordinate desire that will seduce us and lead us down the path of temptation. Even think of something like justice, right? I want, I, I want justice in this circumstance, right? It's not, it's not uh, this desire is not saying justice is good. This desire is saying, no, I must have payback for how I was treated. I must have it at any cost. It's an inordinate, distorted desire. James says, the problem of temptation is these must-have desires within us. Dismiss, displace, dethrone God and lead us into a path of temptation. One, this is an anecdotal thing, um, this conversation. I hear this uh, numerous times from... Uh, from pastors um, who have been in the game much longer than me, this 60s, 70s, and um, speaking about just dealing with adultery in their ministry lives and context. And almost uh, very common to hear this refrain, that when they talk with the parties, their wife, husband, or whatever, it's almost always something like this that's at the cause of the infidelity. It's not always that the relationship, marriage relationship, was totally on the rocks but it's almost always some comment like this. Well, being with that person made me feel like a real man or a real woman. And I think behind that is the must have. I must be seen this way. I must be respected this way. I must be this. Desire that seduced us, traps us, and leads us down the path. Of temptation. Now, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if uh, what James is teaching here immediately makes sense to you. That temptation kind of comes from within us, that, that there is a problem within us. Um, if this doesn't make sense to you, I want to offer this question. If this does make sense to you, hopefully this will bring the point home. Um, but think about just the, the, the story of your life. Isn't one of the common threads of your life that a large chunk of the issues in your life are internal to you, not only external around you. If I was a blunt person, a way to put it bluntly, which I'm not putting this, this is a hypothetical blunt person, not really me, they would say, who has lied to you more than you? Who has tricked you more than you? Who has forced more bad decisions upon you than you? Who is the cause of a large chunk of the regret in your life? Probably a lot of people around you, but I got to guess in the top two or three or top like one B, it's got to be right. We're in there. Ourselves are in there, right? Which, Which again, validate what James is saying. So if this is the case, right? If we have this fork in the road through trials, endurance and temptation, and we have something within us that wants to seduce us, so we'll deceive ourselves, right? Think of, think of how often you think yourself into bad habits. Kind of begin to rationalize this. Well, I'll do that and I'll do this. Well, that would kind of be bad, but if I do it this way, right? And you just, and you just go. If we have that within us, what hope do we have in trials? Like if we've got something like the guinea worm inside of us on a heart level, what hope do we have to withstand trials? Now, one way to deal with trials and temptation is, is external, right? Some of you may be familiar with Ulysses' um, story. and He's, he's going um, on his journey, and the sirens are there. And you, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, and The sirens are there, right? And the sirens, beautiful, beautiful voices. You get to them, you die, right? And so his way to deal with the temptation is to do what? Yeah, ties himself to the mass, right? I think maybe they try to plug ears too, but it definitely ties himself, right? Which in that situation, that actually kind of gets the job done. But in our context, in our situation in James 1, an external solution to an internal problem will only last for a short period of time. So what do we do? Right, we need something on the inside to help us, lead us into who God wants us to be, beautiful, Christ-like, Christ-dependent people. And this is where James goes in the last two verses. Look at what he, at what he says. And again, this seems like a passage, this seems like a, a chunk of verses that doesn't fit with the rest, and hopefully we'll, we'll make that clear in a moment. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." This is our hope and temptation. Notice what James does first. He says, again, do not be deceived, which connects us back to his earlier charge. Who is the one that is not tempting us? God. He's worried that we and his original hearers are going to think about trials, think about temptation, think about endurance, and we're going to be deceived. We're going to be tricked in our thinking. We're going to be fooled into thinking God is sending down trials and laughing and eating popcorn and watching, how are they going to do this, right? <laughs> they, th- they think, right, that he's worried that they're going to be deceived about the character of God in the midst of our trials and temptation. That's why he says, do not uh, know that God is not tempting you. Do not think that God tempts. It comes from within. The other way he doesn't want us to be deceived is he doesn't want us to be deceived when it comes to understanding that temptation comes from within us. Don't be deceived about God's role in this. And don't be deceived about your role in this. Understand who God is. Understand who you are. And then you're ready, on the edge of the pool, about to dive in to the hope that will help you and sustain you in temptation. So that's why he says, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. And then he lays out this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's saying, God is the source of all goodness. That everything good traces and boomerangs back. Everything good is trademarked and runs back to its source in God. Now, now, now why, why, does, why would he say that? Well, he, he wants us to understand that if God's character is that he is good, then that means he's also going to be true to that character in our trials and in our temptations. And he goes here. He says, God's not like the weather. That's why he talks about shadows with whom there's no variation. God's not like the weather here, right? We got rain today, and the other day it was like 90, right? God is not like the weather, just changing on a whim, fickle, depends on how we do, depends on what we've been like, depends how much we've been reading the Bible. doesn't matter on those things. God is good in his essence, in his character. And then James is going to get us to the fundamental mark, the fundamental sign of God's goodness, which is our hope and temptation. It's this sign. God gives us spiritual life. Verse 18, God gives us a new relationship with him. God gives us salvation. Look at what he says in 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What what, what does this mean? This bring forth. Right. This is language again. This is language. Right. We talked about the cycle of sin. That sin gives birth to death. That the sin is like the. That uh, that death is like the end game, and sin is like the grandchild after desire is conceived. Sin. So it's family line. And what James is saying in eighteen is he's saying that God gives birth to spiritual life in us. That when we didn't know God or have an interest in God or understand Jesus. God did a work in our lives and in our hearts, in external situations, but internally to birth an understanding and trust in Jesus. uh, John 3, a bunch of other passages. But God brings forth births, speaks, gives spiritual life that we wouldn't just be his creation, but that we would be a first fruit in his creation. What this means, this is a status of specialty. This is a status of something that's treasured. This is the status of someone who has access. This is James saying that God is good. And here's the proof. He has brought forth spiritual life in us through Jesus so that we could not just be his creatures, but we could be his treasure. That God would treasure us. That God would delight over us. That God would sing over us. That God would make us his sons and daughters forever. This is the proof that God is good. Now, there's one phrase we can't miss in this. James describes this as happening of God's own will. He says, this is of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing better to me than a gift that is unprompted. Can I get an amen to that one? Right? Isn't there's nothing better than you are not expecting it and someone just comes through with a gift for you and it's a good gift. You're just like, oh, yeah. You're just like, it just everything is great. Right, so I know they know exactly what you—they know what you like or get close enough, but you weren't expecting just unprompted goodness, right? This—this is a—this is goodness that comes with no obligation, no requirements. It's nice when somebody does something, but then you find out, well, they were required to do that. Well, I'm going to return it, right? It just doesn't carry the same weight as you did not have to do this for me, and you went ahead and did it. Unprompted goodness. Now, what takes it to the next level is not only unprompted goodness, but unprompted goodness in a situation when what you deserve would be the opposite and that's what God is giving us in Jesus that of his own will of his own initiative of his own desire hear that word of his own desire God wants to give us spiritual life and covenant special relationship with him now and forever You've never got an invitation like this before. That declares how desired and how loved and how treasured you are. That God of his own will is calling us, inviting us into this relationship with him. And he does it by the word of truth. This is a phrase you use throughout the New Testament for the gospel. This is a that God through Jesus is bringing us into his family, not just as creatures, but as his treasure. And he does this through Jesus' atonement, through Jesus' death, through Jesus paying the penalty for our must-have broken uh, behavior and sin against God. Jesus absorbs that and brings us into this unique relationship with God the Father by faith in That's the word of truth that puts spiritual life in us. That's what God is giving us. Now, again, think about this. James is laying out all the ways that our default is to deny God and live for our must-haves. Live for the must-have of reputation live for the must-have of sex, live for the must-have of money, live for the must-have of career, live for the must-have of self-glory. But notice, none of the must-haves that we want to live for in our own default have anything to do with God, who as our Creator deserves all of our allegiance. Despite this treason, despite this denial, God still sends forth Jesus to restore us back to Him. Of His own will, unprompted goodness. This is what the gospel does in our hearts when we believe in Jesus. Salvation and spiritual life inside of us. But do you know what this also means? This also means that if God is putting spiritual life within us, it now means we have something else operating in our hearts beyond the cycle of temptation. You know what we have? Spiritual life! We have something else other than the cycle of death in James 12-15. through Isn't that such good news? Right? This is the person who has the guinea worm finding out I don't have to just pick this out every two days. There's a pill I can take. There's a pill I can take that will fundamentally change me on the inside. So I no longer have to just deal with the external mess that's happening down here. Just trying to make this vivid for you guys. We want to drive this gospel home, right? That's what God is doing in us. So it's not just that God is going to say, here's an entrance into relationship with me. God is actually changing us so that this cycle of temptation does not have to be the last word in every trial that we face. God is making us new. So while the cycle of temptation is still running and is still there, there is a new reality in our hearts because through faith in the gospel, we are accepted by God and God is giving us a new heart with new desires. That say, my old must-haves, they still have my number. They still call me. They still wreak havoc on me. But I live in a new house now. With new rules. And I have new desires. And a new operating principle. And a new way of trying to live by grace through the work of Jesus. So this word of truth, the gospel, is the hope for our temptation, seeing the character of God, the goodness of God, demonstrated in the gospel. The only way to break the hold of a tempting must-have desire on the soul is to show your soul an object even more beautiful and compelling. And that object is God in Jesus, whose goodness is endless, to the point that he orchestrates our salvation through the suffering of Jesus to bring him to you. I want to apply this to you quickly. What if in your trials, you spoke to yourself, your self-talk in your trials was not, is God in this? Where is God? But what if it was, God is good? I don't see his hand in this situation, but I know his heart. God is good. And the way I know that you're good, God, is the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus, where you gave your son first to give me salvation and new spiritual life? What if that was our self-talk and our trials? Wouldn't we be more resilient? Wouldn't we be more often down the path of endurance and a little bit less often down the path of temptation? And even when we're on down the path of temptation, we would remind ourselves that even as we wander here, we're still forgiven. And we have grace for growth and grace for change. So the word of truth. is a hope for salvation as we see the character of God. Trials are an opportunity for endurance or temptation, and when we believe God's unprompted goodness in the gospel, we're able to endure.